Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books in Mexican Studies, uh, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Richard Grijalva, a postdoctoral fellow in Mexican-American Studies at the University of Texas at Austin and a host on this channel. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Eric Van Young about his new book, Stormy Passage, Mexico from Colony to Republic, 1750 to 1850. Eric Van Young is Distinguished Professor Emeritus of History at the University of California, San Diego. He has published countless academic essays and reviews and is the author of several books, including Hacienda and Market in 18th Century Mexico, The Rural Economy of the Guadalajara Region from 1675 to 1810, published in 1981 by the University of California Press, Uh, The Other Rebellion, Popular Violence, Ideology, and the Struggle for Mexican Independence, 1810 to 1821, uh, published by Stanford University Press in 2001, Writing Mexican History, uh, published in 2012 by Stanford, and A Life Together, Lucas Alaman and Mexico, 1792 to 1853, published in 2021 by, by Yale University Press. In addition to these authored works, he has edited and introduced multiple collected editions on Mexican history, which have been published in English and Spanish. He is also an international correspondent with the Academia Mexicana de la Historia. Uh, Dr. Van Young, welcome to the show, and it is an honor to have you on. Pleasure to be here, and nice to greet you and your uh, listeners. Thank you. Um, I wonder if we could begin with you telling us a bit about uh, yourself, your work, and what ultimately got you towards Stormy Passage. Uh, Well, I'm not sure how deeply biographical to get, but uh, to account for my interest in Latin America and Mexico particularly, I might note, uh, as we did in our preliminary conversation, that I was born in Los Angeles which even at the time uh, in the 1950s when I was growing up was a heavily uh, Mexicanized city and becoming more and more so. And one of my fondest childhood memories is is, uh, going down to Olvera Street and, and, you know, getting a taste of maybe what was not completely authentic Mexican culture, but seemed so to me. Uh, I learned Spanish in uh, junior high and high school, and that probably... Uh, having having the language and an interest in history uh, pushed me towards studying Latin American history in uh, when I went to college at the University of Chicago. Uh, and uh, at, at that point, I thought about law school and about history, and it seemed to me that law was rather a facile discipline, despite its complexity. And at the very last minute, I decided to opt for graduate school in history, uh, and uh, went to uh, Berkeley and then taught at actually where you are at UT for two years in the early 1980s and then came to San Diego uh, for basically for personal and family reasons. 
Um, the origin of Stormy Passage uh, is actually the book that was published the year before it, <clears throat> this biography of Lucas Aleman. Uh, Aleman was uh, one of the, well, probably in, in some senses, the greatest statesman of the early Repu Mexican Republic. Uh, at least the the much lauded historian of Mexican liberalism, Charles Hale, the late Charles Hale, referred to Aleman that way as the greatest statesman of the early Republican period, and certainly the most prominent figure other than Santana. Uh, and uh, I, essentially, I was interested, as I note in the introduction to uh, Stormy Passage, uh, I wanted to clear the the ground before I started working on my biography of Aleman. That is to say, uh, I refer to it there as a brush clearing. I wanted to get the major trends of the period clear in my mind, uh, something about the political chronology, about that key transition from uh, a colony to republic and some other ancillary issues. So I planned uh, writing the book uh, concurrently with the latter parts, latter parts of my research on Aleman, in uh, oh I don't know, uh, from around 2010 or so, and wrote a proposal to Little and uh, Roman and Littlefield, which had published the second edition of my book on haciendas. Uh, the proposal was accepted, and a very patient editor, since then retired, Susan McEachern, took it on. Uh, but I kept postponing the book as I got deeper and deeper into the writing of the Aleman biography. Uh, she was, as I said, very patient and indulgent. And uh, despite the fact that I was well over the, the limit of the, of the initial contract at Roman, uh, kept encouraging me to uh, finish the book. And when I was done with the Aleman book, uh, around 2020, and it was in press and editing and all that stuff. I took up the Stormy Passage book, um, and <clears throat> it was consciously aimed at a somewhat broader audience. I don't have any illusions that it's going to be, uh, you know, um, uh, a, a, what's his name, the guy that wrote uh, the Adams biography and about the Panama Canal, David... Uh, can't remember his name. McCullough. McCullough. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, a, a very, very good and maybe even great popular historian, uh, or Ron Chernow's biography, for example. You know, he's a non-academic and his work is wonderful. So I have no illusions about the reach of the audience, but I did want to try and reach a general audience uh, of maybe uh, you know educated lay people who are interested in the history of Mexico. And then uh, beyond that, I had hopes and still do that it might be adopted for classroom use uh, for undergraduates. Now, the periodization is a little awkward. Uh, I think it's it's uh, very, very valid and, and uh, illustrative. Uh, and it's the right one to use for the history of Mexico at that time. But most courses on the history of Mexico or yeah, most I would say are often, they often break at independence. You know, they do a colonial history and then a 19th century. And then if they're as generous as three quarters, they may do something from the Mexican revolution of 1910 onward. Uh, so it doesn't fall easily into that uh, 
periodization, but uh, I do hope that it might be uh, of classroom adoption, at least on a smaller scale. Uh, so there is a paperback version uh, pending. Um, and I shied away in Stormy Passage from some of the issues that really attracted me in the biography of Alaman, which is the question of interiority, which I, I was led to from my work on the independence movement, but why people showed up on a battlefield at a certain day, what their internal mental processes were. So I initially uh, thought about uh, maybe a, a good way to get at that, despite the psychological distortions involved, was a study of an insane asylum, because uh, the documentation about people's mental states would be, you know, very deep and and clear, and and I, you know, I might be able to get at some sense of it, it wasn't interiority in terms of any particular. Uh, criterion like politics or art or anything like that, but it was getting inside people's heads that interested me, even people who were, you know, kind of abnormal in some sense. I quickly abandoned that project. I wrote an article about the early research uh, in, I worked on the, in the archive of the Castaneda uh, madhouse in, in Mexico City. But then I realized very quickly that I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So uh, in terms of an alternate path, I went into biography, and that led me to Alaman, and Alaman to Stormy Passage, where, as I say, he, he serves as a kind of Virgil figure to our transit through this period, which much of which overlaps with his own life from 1792 to 1853. So that's the origin of the, of the book. Well, that's wonderful. Um, what, what, what I find really interesting for you know, for my part one story passage is the book that i wish i had access to when i was writing my own dissertation um and it's funny that you mentioned interiority because that's kind of the, the where i was trying to begin directing research into sort of the you know the the interiority of rebellion um but it, you know, it's one of the, this is one of the first one of the first general histories of this era of Mexican history in English, and it synthesizes a century of change and continuity. Um, it, it charts a very difficult and costly path to independence. Uh, this path in becoming a new nation, a nation adjacent to an ascendant United States. Um, and it's really, you know, as I read it, it's a dramatic tale. Um, it's at times tragic and at other times promising about what is really a severely underappreciated and misunderstood era uh, it, you know, of what we would perhaps call Mexico's long 19th century. Um, you arrange Stormy Passage in three parts. The first section uh, covers the late Bourbon era from 1750 to 1810, which you call colonial twilight. The second deals with the insurgency or the storm at the heart of the book. And third, you discuss the, 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 the very volatile and precarious life of the New Republic, uh, leading up to really what are sort of two of the biggest uh, uh, national tragedies for this young for this young nation, uh, the the loss of Texas and uh, the the uh, American Mexican War. 
uh, sort of perpetrated upon Mexico. So let's start with Colonial Twilight and your snapshot of Nova Hispanic society that you offer in chapter two. What was the general composition of, of Nova Hispanic society around this time? Um, well, it was uh, the majority of the population, you know, and this, and this term is somewhat controversial. It's not clear what the criteria are, but in, in general terms, I think it's accepted that the majority of the population was indigenous. Uh, I calculate something like, uh, you know, 60% or so were indigenous people, what we used to call Indians. And I, I do in the in the book, uh, I alternate that term with indigenous to, to, to prevent, you know, kind of uh, unseemly repetition. Uh, and uh, much of that population was still rural and living in uh, small communities, villages. It, it's fair to say that it was substantially peasant that is to say, uh, uh, farmers, <clears throat> family farmers, either living on uh, their own plots in in villages that are communally organized, they have their own political structure, uh, producing small surpluses, if any, but primarily subsistence farmers. Uh, and then another large segment, although it's it's difficult to to quantify it. Uh, at a guess, I would say maybe of that 60%, uh, maybe uh, a third to a fifth uh, were uh, laborers living on uh, estates that were owned by, uh, you know, nominally white people, either Spaniards. Um, and the, the, the terminology here becomes somewhat complicated because <clears throat> in colonial times, the term Spaniard was used for anybody who at least was nominally Caucasian uh, and of uh, European derivation, even though they might have been born many uh, after many generations in, in New Spain itself. So Spaniard uh, covers both peninsular Spaniards, who are sometimes identified that way, and what we would call Creoles, mm -hmm. that is to say, uh, native-born people of European descent. Uh, they composed uh, probably 20% of the population, uh, were uh, ranged from some uh, very elite families, some of them ennobled by the Spanish crown, uh, and down to, uh, you know, the, the homeless population in large cities. So they spanned the entire population. And then there were about 20% uh, of the population and I'm I'm estimating here of roughly around 1800. That's that's the baseline. 20% mm -hmm. of the population would have been what we now call mestizo, mm -hmm. which is sort of a misnomer because mestizo technically applies, of course, to the indigenous white or Caucasian mix, but it would have it would have uh, embraced also people of African or partial African ancestry. And there are, of course, which you would be familiar with, and some of your listeners might be, these famous uh, uh, pictorial representations of the racial groupings in New Spain at the time, uh, which are known as casta paintings, which depict in a series of cells laid out uh, left to right, typically, the, the many different racial categories that, that were said to apply 
uh, many of which actually did not were not in use, but they were they were they were uh, you know kind of technical technically they are on paper, uh, and it shows uh, the most civilized, of course, and the most uh, uh, how do I want to put this? Well, the most civilized people being people of undiluted Spanish ascent up in the upper left-hand corner, descending to uh, other racial groupings like Tornatras um, oh, uh, and uh, other things like that down at the lower right-hand level, where uh, the couple is depicted beating each other up in a, in a in a, you know, the, the woman is hitting her husband over the head with a, or her partner anyway, over the head with a pot, and there's a little baby in the corner crying, and they're all dressed in rags, and they're very dark in color. So they were very clear, although uh, porous lines of racial uh, division in New Spain. Again, um, there was some upward mobility, but not much. Uh, you know, a caste, and it's not in the South Asian sense that we think of it. Casta really meant, uh, it, it, it combined racial criteria or, or several criteria, uh, um, physical presentation, uh, uh, dominant language. There's a whole bunch of things. Um, so uh, it, was a, it was a very racially... Uh, um, conscious society. There was a good deal of uh, prejudice against people of indigenous background uh, who at least uh, officially, in official rhetoric, and you're a rhetorician, you know this, uh, were, were considered to be often people of almost inferior stock, uh, racially speaking. They were uh, considered to be naturally prone to lying and robbing and alcoholism and uh, unsanctified unions and things like that. Uh, the economy was was largely still a rural economy and a mining economy. Of course, mining was extremely important. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things I cover in the book is the decline of the mining economy. The major export of New Spain at, in the late 18th century was silver, but uh, uh, there were other other sectors of the economy as well. But it's essentially uh, a kind of a, a two-sector economy in terms of the productive economy. That's mining and uh, agriculture, and, and so it was very very ruralized. Uh, there were uh, there was a, a, a substantial urban population. I think perhaps as much as 10 percent. I've estimated. Uh, and, and Mexico City at the time was the largest city in the Americas with, uh, you know, 120, 150,000. The numbers vary, but uh, it was certainly bigger than any other city, including the great South American capitals like Buenos Aires or Lima or even the North American cities. So that's a rough picture of what the society looked like. You know, in, in, in the fourth chapter, you, uh, I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry. In the third chapter, uh, you 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 go about this the, the disabusing of the readers of the idea that the economy was somehow feudal in nature, um, and it's one that it's an economy that whose complexities match the complexities of 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 the society. Um, 
what were some of the the the, the factors that would stand to complicate that you know that that uh, stereotypical picture of of the the feudal uh, uh, of the feudal model which for 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 people who are a little bit more experienced right uh, with with mexican history at the time already sounds kind of strange to begin with right yeah. um but there are there is sort of a long historical memory right that 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 conceives of the of the spanish uh, the colonial spanish american economy as uh, as you know, corporatist and feudal but in the se- 1700s there was a lot of fermentation and and change afoot with tinkering with you know, ideas about the economy. And so um, what was, so what were some of those complicating factors? Um, I think that the, that the, the label of feudal, of course, is very, was very often applied by, by Western European and then North American commentators to describe what were known as entre comillas as backward uh, less developed economies. It was an easily applied stereotype. In the case of the uh, Spanish-American uh, realms in the New World, and there is some controversy uh, as to whether they should be called colonies or not, because uh, their the political structure was officially that they were kingdoms united under the universal monarchy of the Spanish uh, monarchy. So, of course, New Spain was the kingdom of New Spain. Uh, Peru was the kingdom of Peru. Uh, you know, and, and uh, my, my own feeling is if it if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. And that these were colonies, uh, even if not in, in name. Um, there, there was some early justification for applying the, the the label of feudal and it grew out of early grants of uh, indigenous labor and land to the conquistadores in the 16th century the most prominent of whom of course was was uh, Hernan Cortes we know him as Fernando Cortes the uh, the, the the conqueror of um, or the leader of the Spanish conquest of Mexico uh, in reward for his services, uh, the Spanish crown, uh, this would have been uh, Charles the Charles the Fifth uh, or Charles the First, you know, he was Holy Roman Emperor as well, the, the uh, uh, Spanish uh, king, emperor, uh, made enormous grants of land and the use of uh, indigenous labor. So uh, that has all the earmarks of a feudal relationship, which is the monarch uh, granting certain rights or privileges to a vassal, which is what Hernan Cortes was basically. So there was some justification for that in the early period. However, when you really look at what uh, Cortes does, uh, you see the very early penetration of capitalism uh, at least what what we would, or what we might call proto capitalism. I've always been a, a little uh, twitchy about applying the term capitalism uh, as such to the early 
economy. But what Cortez does with a lot of his property is produce for the market. <clears throat> it's not as though he simply uh, had an enormous baronial establishment, which he did in, in Cuernavaca particularly, uh, and simply produced stuff to, fe to feed his retainers and his knights and rode out into the countryside swinging their swords and, you know, stuff like that. But it was, it was an intensely uh, uh, market-oriented economy that he developed and others parallel with him in other areas of the country. What he did on most of his estates, there was one on the coast that was important and one in Cuernavaca and other areas too, was to brew sugar for export to Europe. Uh, and to do this, uh, he and other early uh, uh, conquistador empresarios uh, employed uh, African slave labor, which was very important and left a, a very strong ethnic trace and cultural trace in Mexican culture. So while I think there is uh, uh, some justification for calling the Big Bang feudal, I think after that, it develops in a, in a very different direction. Commercial agriculture internally within uh, New Spain is quite highly developed, uh, you know, to feed cities and certainly the mining establishments. And there were mines uh, all over the middle part of the country and up into the Northwest as far as uh, uh, Chihuahua and of course into the what is now the American uh, Southwest. Uh, and uh, there developed a very vital uh, commercial economy within the country uh, and important links to the outside world as well during the colonial period. And it was all very highly capitalistic. It was it was profit oriented. It was there were high levels of reinvestment. So I think uh, from that point of view, calling uh, the economy feudal is uh, a misnomer. Now, there is the problem that some of the social relationships, and this, uh, of course, is a, in, in Marxian terms, is a gross contradiction. But some of the, some of the social relationships embedded in this proto-capitalist or capitalist economy look feudal. Um, and in fact, I engaged in a, in a slight controversy a number of years ago with um, Francois Chevalier, who was one of, who, a French historian who wrote one of the great early books on rural New Spain about the about uh, uh, haciendas and, and rural life. Uh, and we agreed in, in one publication that we would call the capitalist the economy of New Spain capitalist, or at least proto-capitalist, and the social relations somewhat feudalistic, if not feudal, because there was there was very definite subordination between employers and employees, particularly in the countryside, resident neighbors on haciendas, or uh, villagers who, who could farm a bit on their own and then sold some of their labor to neighboring large estates. Uh, and those those relationships were very uh, were were formed in the mold of European feudalism, but didn't quite replicate it. There was very strong subordination of laborer to employer. Uh, there were forms of interpersonal intervention. 
of of uh, patronage, even of uh, godparenthood and other uh, informal or formal but non-economic uh, social bonds. So that's how I would qualify the issue of of uh, feudal and feudalism. And of course, in the in the from the mid eighteenth century on, the Bourbon monarchs in Spain. Uh, in order to reform what by then had become a very creaky empire, which was subject to uh, uh, encroachments, particularly by the British, who, of course, this is the great age of British imperialism. Uh, uh, the Bourbon monarchs wanted to reform their their uh, Spanish American realms and introduce a number of uh, um, you know, at least nominally modern economic reforms, such as opening up trade, which had previously been a monopoly, trying to stimulate manufacturers, uh, rationalizing the tax structure and other things like that. So by the end of the colonial period and the colonial twilight, as I call it, the situation had become fairly complex, as you, as you pointed out. Uh, and I think if there are any remnants of feudalism, they they exist in the countryside and labor relationships, but they're certainly not feudal. They're feudalist, but not feudal. It's interesting that you say that because the 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 written records seem to bear that out, right? That you have this very sort of feudal imaginary where people refer to one another in political relations as your vassal and, and the like, but to the degree to which that is actually, to the degree to whether that's you know, metaphor or actually uh, a, a kind, that kind of economic subordination is, un, is at the very least unclear, right? Um, because, and there is a kind of, almost affective almost nostalgic element to that use of of the of of, of the you know, of service to to someone more powerful as you know your your loyal vassal and servant so on and so forth sure. um so uh, you, it's just, just a comment uh i recently learned that the expression chow that we use so much uh-huh and is actually a reduction of the word esclavo. And the uh, the uh, original derivation of it was uh, Central European. It was a way, it was, it was a, a courteous despedida. If you were talking to somebody or writing to somebody, you're a slave of mm. service. So, uh, uh, that that usage still. I was just reading a book about the Viennese, and that's where how it came up. The history of Vienna. Uh, that usage, I think, is still somewhat used. But the 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 uh, the chow is a is a corruption of that of that original original word. I'm sorry. Wow. Go on. Of that, of that dismissal. That's fascinating because I, I'm thinking of this makes me think of the work of uh, Concepcion Company, uh, where she does this. Uh, sort of linguistic analysis of the, the the genesis of Mexican Spanish and the social conditions under which Mexican Spanish emerges and its sort of colloquialisms and its diminutives and these sort of um, maneuvers or, or semantic and, and discursive maneuvers to attenuate social tensions through a yeah. certain kind of 
politesse, right? <laughs> and and um, and this happens very much, right, in this era of 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 the bourbon uh, the bourbon era, um, and of course in in the previous you know two centuries, but it, it becomes even more so pronounced you know, in this time. But apropos your observation that there is a good deal of of uh, discursive formality, but uh, uh, informal informality. Uh, that's sort of a paraphrase of what you're saying. It it corresponds to other aspects of the of society at the time, like the caste system. All those sixteen categories that one sees in the uh, representation representation of of castas. Uh, most of them were not used. Nobody was ever actually called tornatras or aitestas or some of the more arcane uh, categories. The, the primary categories were espanol, mestizo, sometimes castizo, although that wasn't much in use, uh, and uh, a variety of terms embracing people of African ancestry. But there were really... Uh, in, in actual use, probably only five or six of those categories. So while they exist formally uh, in actual usage, uh, they're, uh, they're idealizations, essentially. Mm-hmm. No, it, it, no, no, that, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, the, the ways in which that porosity gets negotiated, right? Um, you know, Maria Elena Martinez has that beautiful... Uh, book right uh, the late Maria Elena Martinez uh, that that beautiful book genealogical fictions right um, but this refers to an, an earlier time she's really looking at the 17th century um, uh, and in uh, what I'd like to go talk about is is sort of what would readers be surprised to learn about the 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 reforms and their central effects you know from from outside we see this as a, a kind of you know, imposition or, or sort of attempt to impose the the, the French model of intendancies um, to greater to, you know, in order to to, to rationalize uh, uh, Spanish and Novo Hispanic society at large, and it's also an attempt to create uh, opportunities for revenue under a fiscal military regime. Um, but what other sort of elements would, would would readers be surprised to learn about the reforms and their principal effects? Uh, well, my own perception of this, and I'm not sure how clearly it comes through in the book. Uh, I do talk a lot about the tratadistas, these uh, Spanish intellectuals and officials in the 18th century who wrote, uh, you know, tratado, in other words, tre- a treatise. Mm-hmm. You know, produce written works on uh, how to reform the Spanish Empire and how to optimize fiscal uh, recovery from the colonies and things like that. The Campillo y Cosio, right? Uh, exactly. Uh, my own feeling, which is a bit heterodox, actually, is that the Bourbon reforms, uh, to the degree that that they are. Well, I won't say intended, but to the degree that they have been seen historically uh, as altering, particularly uh, the society of New Spain, really don't penetrate very far into the society. So, if 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 a reader of this book had had read the conventional 
or the received wisdom that the Bourbon reforms were kind of a revolution. Uh, and David Brading actually, in his first uh, book, uh, a still a magisterial work called uh, Miners and Merchants in Bourbon, Mexico, uh, Brading referred to the Bourbon reforms as a revolution in government. Uh, now, it was a revolution in government, but the question of how deeply it the reforms penetrated into society, I think is a very open very open issue. I don't think they, they made much difference in the lives of, of ordinary people. Uh, I think the elites were affected. I think people, uh, uh, you know, merchants and people in the commercial sector were were affected, but I don't think the everyday Novo Hispano, which is what you'd call someone who lived in New Spain, Nueva España, I don't think the Bourbon reforms reach reach very deeply. So if if the if the if the view is that, and there's some justification, but you have to kind of look at it in a kind of a stratified way. Uh, if the view is that the Bourbon reforms sowed the seeds of destabilization, that then brought on uh, independence, and there is some justification for that view. Uh, I think you have to anatomize that view uh, and and uh, see it as as penetrating not very far see it as as affecting the Spanish and Creole elites and as forms of government there were some things that would have affected ordinary people there were reforms to the tribute system for example indigenous people since the 16th century my right of conquest that was the legal basis for it uh, were paying tribute to the Spanish crown, and that was a major source of revenue. And there were tribute reforms in the late 18th century to close loopholes in the system, which was really full of holes with like Swiss cheese by then. But uh, the Bourbon reforms did uh, manage to extract more in the way of uh, in the way of uh, a tribute, and they instituted certain monopolies, like a tobacco monopoly, for example, which uh, was the the province of the Spanish state and therefore the colonial state, and uh, you know, like a playing card monopoly and things like that, ways of extracting more fiscal revenue. But I don't think the Bourbon reforms as a whole made a huge amount of difference to the lives of of ordinary people. Um, now, what they did at the elite and near elite level, um, oh, and, and let me let me cite one other uh, piece of evidence for this. Uh, uh, as I mentioned in our informal and very nice conversation before we started this, uh, there is a British historian quite eminent now in his 80s named Brian Hamnett, who taught for years at the University of Sussex, I believe. Um, and has been very prolific writing about the about imperial Spain, the empire as such, and particularly about about New Spain and Mexico. Uh, I would refer readers, by the way, to his brief history of Mexico, which, uh, alongside Alan Knight's recent work, his two volumes on on the history of Mexico, is really a very very good uh, summary. Uh, Hamlet's first book was on in the Bourbon reforms in Oaxaca particularly the reformation of the system of uh, 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 mer mercantile extractions through informal and not quite sanctioned uh, mechanisms 
of uh, revenues from indigenous people, kind of forced extractions, which was was sub-legal, but was tolerated by the authorities because it kind of greased the wheels of commercial uh, uh, commercial activity in, in that area. Uh, Hamnet points out that despite the Bourbon reforms outlawing some of these practices, they still continued. Uh, so that uh, in that sense, the attempt to, uh, uh, how do I want to call it, not, not, not relieve the burdens of ordinary people, but to, to, to raise the, the, the bulk of the economy more into the light. You know, it's said that icebergs are 90% underwater and 10% above. So to make the economy more visible, more monetized, and more fiscally available, uh, the the bourbon reforms in 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 that sense had a limited and very mixed uh, effect. That's interesting. Um, it, I, I think with that, um, that's a good way to sort of move into our the second part where you discuss the insurgency and, and the points of fracture that led New Spain pretty much headlong into civil war. Because even in even you know, there were revolts beforehand, but what made the revolts stick in the Hidalgo case and 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 afterward, right? Um, uh, you, you say um, that's that's one aspect. And another question you, you mentioned at the beginning, should the Mexican struggle for independence be viewed as the end of the colonial period or the beginning of independent nationhood? And, and this really seems to be the, 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 the heart of the text, right? Where you find these two intertwining threads of modernization, whether you know, in, in its different senses and very layered stratified senses uh, and decolonization flowing through different sectors of life in, in this a very complex economy and society. Um, uh, how do we see, you know, in some ways, the, the the emergence of of more organized resistance that leads up to the insurgency uh, coming out of the the reforms? Well, uh, um, the the uh, three books back. Uh, there's a book you mentioned called The Other Rebellion, which was published in 2001, uh, is my uh, history of the Mexican uh, Wars for Independence uh, from uh, 2010 to 2021. Uh, what I did in that book, and again, it was, it was, I think, following an implicit hint of something that Brian Hamnett wrote in his pioneering work on uh, the uh, independence period called Roots of Insurgency. Uh, what Hamnet did in there, and the book has flaws as anyone, as anyone will, and, and uh, absences that scream. But what he did there, and uh, what he's one of the first to do, uh, aside from de-romanticizing and demystifying the wars of independence, which of course, uh, at the hands of Mexicans themselves uh, and the Mexican state uh, and uh, Mexico's 
um, I don't know what I want to call them using this word. Uh, it, it's cultivated historical consciousness. <clears throat> the the and again, in, ter- in 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 the service of state and nation building, the independence period has become largely mythified. And of course, Hidalgo, and justifiably so, is one of the great national heroes, along with Benito Juarez, uh, you know, arguably Zapata, although his fortunes wax and wane depending upon the regime that's in power. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and what... Uh, Hamnet did was to disaggregate the movement for independence. Uh, interestingly enough, he never really talks very much about indigenous people, which my book is dev- primarily devoted to. Therefore, it's titled The Other Rebellion. That is to say what indigenous people were doing as opposed to the Creole leadership cadres, including Father Hidalgo, Allende, uh, and, and others, um, is to disaggregate this movement. And I, in, in story passage, I even question as to whether it be, can be called a movement in the sense that many groups of people were, 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 were moving forward together to, uh, to uh, achieve a common goal or cause in the sense that we think of a political movement, for example, or the labor movement or something like that. Um, I think that you need to disaggregate as as Hammond did, and as I did even more, the movement for independence, uh, that at its base, uh, despite, I think, the mythology, and not everybody agrees with me about this, despite the mythology that indigenous people and Creoles and everybody were moving forward to cast off the yoke of Spanish oppression and to realize, uh, uh, you know, the... the, the uh, providential uh, existence of the, of the Mexican nation. And that's the kind of accepted or the conventional wisdom in terms of public discourse in, in, in Mexico, much of which was taken up by some very good Mexican his, historians and some of it has, has been disputed. Um, I think at, at, at base, there's not much of that going on. I didn't frankly find much evidence that indigenous villagers who found themselves on a given battlefield in a, in a given moment cared very much about uh, the provident, the implicit providential existence of the Mexican nation. You know, what, what could a nation have meant to these people who are living largely in isolation within their uh, village uh, communities? Uh, and the conventional wisdom is that everybody was mobilized by these ideas. I don't think so. And, and in in the in the uh, other rebellion book, my main thesis is that, in fact, to the degree that indigenous people, for the most part, are involved in this uh, uh, episode, this prolonged and very violent episode of a decade, it's essentially uh, in the defense of village communities that those had been uh, monkeyed with, partially by the Bourbon reforms. Um, and uh, uh, over the course of the 18th century, through increasing commercialization and the penetration of commercial agriculture in the, in the countryside and things of that nature, that they were essentially de- de- defending their uh, their uh, Costumbres uh, tradicionales, their traditional customs of village governments, 
uh, particularly religious sensibility and, and practice. And that at base, much of the rebellion, much of the insurgency is indigenous people defending their communities. Uh, and I think, but I do think the, the nature of the rebellion changes over time. I think as uh, this initial impulse of indigenous people uh, plays itself out in the first five years or so, up to 1815-16, and as Spanish, that is to say, the the the, the rule of the Spanish state and the, the colonial state uh, uh, asserts itself uh, very stubbornly during this entire period and uh, gets its, excuse the expression here, gets its shit together in terms of uh, resistance to uh, the insurgency, the nature of the movement changes. It becomes somewhat more organized in, in, in the terms that you mentioned, particularly under figures like Morelos, who of course dies in 1815, but his, uh, his uh, uh, leadership is taken over by other people, by people, some of whom become regional caudillos or caciques after, the, uh, after independence. Uh, I think it becomes substantially more mestizo, and of course, the the uh, one of the great received wisdoms we have from at least from writers like Jose Vasconcelos in the 1920s in Mexico, but others as well, that the movement for independence was essentially mestizo, that is to say, a people of mixed blood led by a, a thin Creole crust of leadership. In fact, my own research indicated that the at least up to the middle of the decade, 1815-16, the composition of the insurgent forces was essentially uh, indigenous in its majority, that it was 50 or 55 percent indigenous, which corresponds closely to the composition of indigenous people and the overall population. Anyway, the composition of the movement changes. It becomes, I think, more mestizoized. Uh, the Creole leadership uh, remains in place, exemplified, of course, by the by what has some people call the consummation of independence. Other people have disputed that um, by Agustin de Iturbide and the people that he managed to mobilize as he went around the country in 1820 and 21, uh, other mestizo uh, military leaders and even some of the Spanish military leaders uh, uh, to um, mobilize what was essentially initially a very conservative reaction to changes that were going on in Spain, apropos the constitution of 1812 uh, and the liberalization of Spanish politics. So anyway, that that I think is somewhat an answer to your question. It, it, you know, what, what I find really lovely about this section of the of the text, right, is is uh, is that you reserve the account of the sequence of the war and for the final chapter, um, and really do concentrate. I mean, I take, you know, I you know, when I when I read chapter six. I thought, oh my goodness! I'm, you know, I, I'm all, all my favorite figures from the other rebellion, you know, return and 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 wave hello. Um, you know, I think about like Chito Villagran and 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 you know and, and others, right? Uh, you have some very colorful figures. Um, uh, but what, what's what was really interesting that is that one, you know, 
the Mexico of the time wasn't a mass society, right? So, and 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 what got in the way of that was this, in part, was this geographic difficulty. You know, Mexican terrain, the Mexican terrain is just on a on a good day is hard to pass through, uh, and you know, given the technological uh, state of affairs at the time, there were impassable regions. Um, and you know, and externally hot regions, and uh, and so seeing how how that plays out as a part of it is 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 important, and and also there's this you know at the upper 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 bounds of uh, of Spanish politics and geopolitics is that almost by you know, these two sort of bizarro accidents occur. For the, at the beginning, you have the Napoleonic invasion, right? Uh, that that sparks this sort of conservative uh, revolt, uh, uh, even among Spaniards, right? Mm-hmm. A- a- and on the other side, is bookended by the 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 liberal revolt of eighteen twenty, a- and you have this exhaustion, right? It, it, and you make this you know, rather clear in the text in chapter seven, right? That you know, consummation is just as much a function of exhaustion uh, as it is you know, a, a, a kind of grand event of liberation. <laughs> um, you know, uh, and that, you know, that, that trigarantism or, or that you know, Iturbide's work or labors, you know, we're also this this way of kind of finding a way to 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 settle this out. You know, how much more could can can this can this small can this society handle? Yeah, right, right. And I think it's interesting to note. I think uh, it, there's not only exhaustion in play. And, you know, fairly high, I mean, it's almost impossible to reckon uh, figures of casualty in terms of the internal war in New Spain. My own estimate was that they're out of a population that's roughly six or six and a half million at the beginning, that there were at least several hundred thousand people who were killed or wounded. But beyond that, of course, there's the enormous disruption in the economy. The mining economy, as I point out, uh, was virtually gutted. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, and that that really uh, kind of puts New Spain in the soup in terms of, uh, you know, its fiscal basis and what it what it can export and the, the you know the basis for the economy of the independent uh, newly independent nation and how it integrates itself into the north atlantic economy um i got off on a tangent here what were we uh i'm sorry i've lost my train no, no, of thought. But I, I, I do think you conclude you know, just by the 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 yes i know what i wanted to say yeah okay i'm sorry uh it was not only exhaustion uh, but I think in a, a good deal of incompetence on the part of the Spanish regime. I mean, there was this, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, totally, I don't know that it was totally unrealistic, but substantially unrealistic and stubborn irredentism on the part of Fernando VII, the Spanish king, 
Uh, but as you point out, in the in the period from 18, as, as some of your listeners may not be familiar, uh, in the period from 1820 to 23, it's, in Spain, it's called the Trienio Liberal. There was a, a military rebellion in 1820, uh, and uh, uh, Ferdinand VII, the king, was forced to um, swear allegiance again to the, con the liberal constitution, or substantially liberal constitution of 1812, uh, which he had, uh, uh, what's the word I want, uh, abjured. I mean, he had kind of suppressed it when he came to power when the French were expelled in 1814. It's a complicated history. I, I go through it in the book, but it's a fairly well-known sequence of events. Um, but I think the uh, if you look at what happens in the Spanish Cortes, the, the imperial parliament uh, in the early 1820s, uh, despite its its nominal liberalism, there is still uh, an echo of Ferdinand's own irredentism. The the question of the Americas, that is, what to do about these rebellious colonies. Uh, uh, has to be forcibly injected into the in, into the agenda and the Cortes uh, among the deputies by the American deputies, and uh, the 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 Spanish regime refuses to deal with this in a very uh, realistic way. There were some some efforts and some commissioners were sent out and stuff like that, but the assumption was always that they would remain within the Spanish Empire. Perhaps their status slightly altered and you know, kind of minimal autonomy granted and stuff like that. But it 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 uh, it it was it was uh, 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 finally a very unrealistic view of dragging back the colonies into the imperial uh, scheme of things. So I think there was stubbornness and incompetence as well as exhaustion that's responsible. And, and when you were talking about uh, you. Know, sending out commissioners, right? Um, Juan Odonohu, right, gets foisted into in, into uh, into getting sent across the Atlantic. And by the time he's there, the jig is pretty much up, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and he's almost, you know, you know, and he's just as much in the, you know, he's just as much uh, uh, lost as, as, you know, someone just getting thrown in media rest would be, which is yeah. all, everything's already happened around him and he then has to deal with it. He has to do the best he can, yeah. And um, make a necessity. <laughs> and, and I think this this also sets us up quite nicely for sort of what happens later. Uh, you know, once Iturbide, um, you know, uh, is at the sort of tip of the spear, as it were, mm -hmm. uh, and and they now they're they're kind of Mexico is kind of stuck having to figure out what are we going to be, right? And and, and I think that's what the third, you know, you know beside the the kind of uh, I, I kind of want to say misbegotten foray into into Mexican imperialism, whatever that was supposed to mean as as a way of maintaining a, a sense of political uh, uh, visibility. You know, this third part really of, of Stormy Passage really deals with this 
incredible uncertainty and instability that follows, right? Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, one, in chapter eight, you discuss this tumultuous flow of Mexican politics. Uh, and you see this very much through the career of Alaman, right? Uh, his place in the constitutional debates, but also how all these sort of fluctuations leave this vacuum of legitimacy, which I find to be really fascinating. Um, what were sort of the major lines of this this this, this legitimate legitimation crisis, as it were, and to use an old uh, an old Frankfurt School line? Uh, 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 and was there a political culture that was developing that could actually fill that vacuum? Well. Uh... That's an extremely interesting question, and one that I'm, now that you ask it, I might take up again in some articles or something like that. Uh, <clears throat> what I pose in the book, as you just eloquently, I think, summarized, is that underlying this stormy passage, uh, which, of course, embraces the insurgency as well as the early Republican period, um, is what I pose is this, uh, the, the reason for the political chaos and the changes in regime and all the armed rebellions and the pronunciamientos, that is, military rebellions and things like that, uh, is, uh, as you just pointed out, is this uh, failure of a principle of legitimacy to take hold in politics, that is to say, some principle that by general consensus uh, makes political change right. In other words, what, what do we, why do we believe that it's fair or, you know, through whatever the mechanism is, whether it's monarchical, appointments of, of uh, officials or bureaucracy or whatever it is, or in this case, Republican institutions to change regime, whether it's elections or whatever it is. Uh, why do we not, and actually this is a question I've been asking myself since I was probably a, a teenager. Why, for example, and I'm getting a little bit off track here, when you, when you at least we in the West, when you see what a son of a bitch Putin is, why don't why doesn't his palace guard simply take him out and change things? How is it that he exercises this now apparently somewhat compromised, but still very uh, dominant power over the regime that he has built? It's one man. You could put ground glass in his orange juice, and he'd be he'd be gone. Uh, so what what is the what is the principle of legitimacy that or what is the the principle of, of rightness that prevents the war of all against all to use the the uh, the uh, Hobbesian phrase? Uh, well, I think that that what goes on is that in the transition from the monarchical to the republican period via the as I refer to it the eye blink of the to be the empire. Um, what goes on is that 
the ancient, let us say ancient, you know, three centuries, which is fairly ancient in terms of modern life, uh, the ancient principle of legitimacy was the Spanish monarchy. Uh, and from Habsburg times, the monarch, of course, uh, it was the monarch, the, the, the monarchical government was a conciliar form that tried to reconcile various kinds of interests with the king or the emperor as judge, mm -hmm. basically. Uh, and this was divinely sanctified. It was a divinely sanctified monarchy. And the Mermans enjoyed that sanctification as well. It had grown thinner by then, as we know, because of the ideas of the Enlightenment and all that kind of thing. So my, my thought was that with the sweeping away of whatever residual forms of legitimacy the monarchy represented, there was no there was no anchor, there was no you know kind of ground for people to say, well, if the king says it, you know, we'll, we'll, we might abide by that. Uh, or if one party gets voted out in an election, uh, why are elections valid? Sound familiar? Mm -hmm. uh, so my my thought is that 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 accounts for this these wild swings. Plus, of course, underneath uh, an important factor, aside from that, which would apply to everyone in politics, you know, what is right and what is a consensually arrived at procedure for political change that's based in in a belief that the system is essentially right mm. that orderly forms of political change are correct. Uh, underneath that, or, or uh, parallel to it, is of course the division between conservatives and liberals, uh, or between conservative ideology and liberal ideology, which had, had penetrated uh, New Spain, certainly with the Bourbon reforms, and, and, and very much so during the period uh, following uh, 18, 1808, 1810, the conservatives basically uh, represented in, in this book uh, uh, by, you know, at least notionally by the figure of Lucas Solomon, believing in centralized forms of government, at least oligarchical, perhaps monarchical, uh, centralized forms of power, uh, that the elite, basically the edu educated elite knows, knows best what the fate of the country should be. Uh, there are actually remarkable <clears throat> echoes between Alamans thinking and that of other conservatives and uh, Alexander Hamilton uh, a half century earlier. Uh, and I think uh, the, the irony of the early American Republic is that despite the triumph of Jefferson and Jeffersonian ideology, it's really Hamilton that carries the day in terms of the modern structure of the United States, you know, a centralized federal bureaucracy and a tax system and a, a, a viable bank, more or less viable banking system and all that kind of thing, as opposed to the Jeffersonian ideal. Uh, and I don't think Mexican liberals echoed Jefferson exactly, but they did believe, and you see this, uh, as you pointed out earlier, uh, in the for the so-called liberal constitution. You see it in terms of decentralization of power. You see it in terms of uh, the states having uh, uh, very much control over fiscal receipts. You see it in terms of a recession 
a recession of, st of central state power, uh, and, you know, along with uh, uh, traditional guarantees of individual rights, which the conservatives were were less uh, likely to likely to do. Uh, also, the emphasis on the role of the church. Uh, which you yourself in your own research are are delving into, you know, what that transition is like uh, in the early Republican period. So uh, I think that the struggle for that, for that principle of legitimacy underlies much of that political tumult, as you referred to it, uh, which goes on really through the, the middle of the century. Uh, and... Uh, eventuates in the uh, the reforma. Uh, and again, I think it's partially a matter of exhaustion, uh, you know, in terms of the political class and in terms of uh, the people to the degree that they have any voice in politics at all. Uh, anyway, I've gone on. And for better, or for worse, right? It, it seems that the most exhaust, exhausting figure on the scene is one Antonio Lopez de Santana, right? Um, because as you mentioned in the text, he wasn't a terrible he, he wasn't terribly interested in politics. If, if there's anybody on you know, it, it, if there was anybody that could have been a counterweight, say to if there was say a a, a Jefferson or a Madison to you know to uh, to Alamans Hamilton, right? It's you know, uh, Valentin Gomez Farias, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, he was sort of the the mastermind liberal politician, absolutely, absolutely. You know, who held sway. Um, yet at the same time, it's this. You know, he you know, Santana is a specter that hovers over the second over this period, right? Uh, of the post eighteen twenty four order. Mm -hmm. Um, and what comes out of that, you know, he's, he is sort of witness to these, and if not witness, definitely, or if not, definitely a witness, if not a participant in these two major disasters, right? Um, the loss of Texas, which was already being colonized by the early 1820s. Right, uh, and at the at the invitation of of Mexico, we need people to come in, and of course Stephen Austin, uh, Moses, and Stephen Austin, are like, sign us up, uh, and then also what comes, you know, two decades late, or another another decade later is after eighteen thirty six is uh, the the American uh, intervention into Mexico and the loss of half the territory. Mm -hmm. um, how do you see Santana kind of, do you see him sort of as emblematic of, of this sort of tide of these historical developments? Well, emblematic certainly in the sense that he was the dominant historical presence during much of that period uh, and is in and out of the presidency, what, 10 or 11 times, I think. Uh, uh, ironically, very often, or, or at least a couple of times with his, with Gomez Farias as his vice president, the great kind of liberal tribune of the age, along with uh, Lorenzo de Savala and some other prominent figures. Um, and of course, uh, 
one thing that happens is that when uh, Santana is elected uh, president in the wake of the fall of uh, the government in 1832, uh, Gomez Farias is vice president. Santa Ana, as he often did, retired to his estates in the Veracruz area, pleading ill health, et cetera, et cetera. And Gomez Farias, as, as uh, vice president and basically acting chief executive, uh, pushes through, uh, with the help of a liberal Congress, a number of very uh, important reforms outlawing the uh, the church tithe, making it voluntary, uh, a, a number of other reforms, educational and other things, which of course Santana immediately reverses when he comes back to power. Uh, it's like it's like if you remember the Peanuts uh, uh, cartoon strip. Mm -hmm. uh, Lucy is always holding the football. Or is it lie? I forgot who. And Charlie Brown, she's always promising that she'll hold it when he comes to kick it. And she always jerks it away at the last minute and Charlie Brown. <laughs> right. That's that's sort of the Gomez Farias son and uh, 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 Santana relationship. Now, of course, so in that sense, Santana is emblematic. Uh, I think he's anti emblematic. And then you pointed this out yourself in the sense that although he is, for much of his career, actually very adept at politics, he's essentially, he, he, he's not interested in so much in what power can do for the betterment of his country and his countrymen as in the trappings of power mm -hmm. and being uh, in the driver's seat uh, and we mustn't forget that he's a military man through and through throughout his life. So <clears throat> seeing uh, himself as chief, exec chief executive with control over the military, I think is another powerful motivation. When I say he was adept at politics, even though he wasn't very interested in 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 politics as an as an instrumentality of profound, at least political or social, and economic change. Um, one thing that he did to cement his base of power was to settle some of his uh, uh, the soldiers who had fought with him in various coups and other things like that on his estates in in Veracruz. He had several mm -hmm. large estates, the most famous of which was Manga de Clavo. Uh, he had all these large properties, and he settled colonies of uh, military colonies, essentially of his own uh, military followers so he could always count on them uh when when you know when push came to shove come came to shove when when uh, politics got uh violent so in that sense he was very shrewd he was also quite shrewd in playing people off against against each other in forming some uh important political alliances for example with lucas aleman uh and he was also uh, uh, Santana, very shrewd in seeing which way the wind was blowing. Uh, at sometimes he was a liberal, and other times he was more of a centralist. So there's a good deal of shrewdness and political aptitude there. Uh, but what it's in the service of has never been entirely clear. I still find Santana, despite a masterful biography of Will by Will Fowler, an English historian, which came out 
I don't know, seven, eight years ago, and I recommend it to your readers. It's called Santana of Mexico. It's a wonderful book. Uh, despite that book, I still find Santana somewhat of an enigmatic figure and why people kept turning to him time after time after he had let them down. Mm. Uh, somehow he managed to be all things to all people. Uh, and there were no other military figures with the uh, with the cachet that he had, despite the fact that he kept losing battle after battle. And Texas was the, was the big one. And then he uh, did not do that well in the war against the United States either. Um, and yet here he comes back from exile uh, in 1850 uh, for a last gasp in the executive chair until 1853. So he was, he was uh, remarkably resilient uh, and again, very shrewd politically, but not interested in, and I'm again repeating myself, not interested in the, in politics as an instrumentality for uh, political, social, or economic change. He was he wasn't very good at governing, at least for no, for, for the benefit of the whole. What? Um, and so I, I think with that. Um, we, we come back to the figure of Santana in 1850, right at our bookend, right? Um, and two things come about. One is, or two questions come about. One, what did Mexico look like when we take leave of, of our subject? Um, and second, the, the descriptions that, that, that we, we get and, and impressions that we get of post- early Republican politics seem to cast some echoes uh, in our present day. Um, I don't want to say lessons per se, but um, they do offer at least to some extent a, a warning of sorts, maybe, um, about the, the limits of certain kinds of politics and governance. So we could do that, pursue that question a little bit later. But what, what does Mexico look like when we take leave? Well, again, you have to, uh, and this has actually been the gist of what I've pursued in much of my career as a historian in Mexico. You have to disaggregate Mexican society geographically and socially. Uh, you know, analytically. Uh, and in fact, I, uh, in my book on the other rebellion was was uh, faulted by my good friend and, and uh, colleague Alan Knight for uh, providing uh, too much of an analytical structure for the book rather than a narrative structure. But that's just the way my mind works. And in the, in my book on Lucas Aleman, I also, which is a biography straight straight up and down, uh, there are a number of chapters in there that are analytic chapters rather than narrative chapters as such, in which I pluck out al uh, uh, aspects of Aleman's life and the history of the period uh, and handle them in a way that he never exactly lived them because he lived them over the course of time. But I found them thematically coherent and to say something not only about his time, his life, but the time of the country. Um, so my general tendency has been to disaggregate and to analyze rather than chronicle and narrate, which is mm -hmm. a perfectly honorable 
uh, and there's a lot of it in Stormy Passage. I sort of, uh, I wouldn't say revert to it because that makes it sound like a primitive or or uh, ill-advised uh, uh, technique. But I think uh, historical narrative, I mean, historians are basically storytellers. Um, and in fact, I think if you scratch most historians, you'll find a novelist beneath the surface. Anyway, what Mexico looked like, you have to disaggregate it so socially and geographically, as you pointed out. Uh, it was not yet united geographically. That happens in the in the late 19th century with the regime of Porfirio Diaz and the advent of the railroads, whose influence is very hard to overestimate. And then into the 20th century with the development, well, the, the telegraph is, is uh, making its appearance in the mid-century. Uh, and uh, uh, railroad lines, at least connecting with connecting Veracruz to Mexico City in the, I think, in the 1860s. But it's the boom of the railroads and the export economy and the reach of the state, by the way, which also goes with it, the, the Pax Porfiriana, the, the Porfirian peace uh, uh, in the 1870s, 80s, 90s, and then into the early 20th century. So Mexico is still heavily regionalized, regionalized uh, in 18. 50 or 53. And in fact, one of the points I've made in several things I've written is that the goal of many people who control the central state or who think about Mexico in a, in a large scale way is to uh, reduce the power of regionality and increase the power of class. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is to integrate the country geographically so that one has larger internal markets and to increase the power of class in the sense that that will be a product of industrialization or of uh, the modernization of the economy uh, and that you'll get a working, a discernible working class as opposed to a segmented uh, uh, society of laborers working in various places. Now, there is some incipient industrialization by 18, well, it goes back to the colonial period by, by 1850. Uh, cities have grown in size. Uh, Mexico City by then, I think, is 150,000 or so, which is still quite large for the time and place, not by comparison with European standards, but certainly uh, uh, in the Americas, not by the United States, which already has taken off you know, in the 1830s and 40s with immigration of the Irish and the Germans and other groups. So there's been a good deal of urban development in the U.S. Mexico is behind that uh, at that time. In fact, there's a very interesting series of articles by the eminent uh, economic historian John Coatsworth uh, discussing why Mexico falls behind economically after 1800. Uh, and he had one of the, uh, uh, and he he says that in at that point it did not compare unfavorably to the infant United States in terms of uh, gross domestic product et cetera and a bunch of other economic indicator indicators although the statistics are very wobbly uh, and he says that from that point on Mexico fell further and further behind well by 1850 or so it's beginning to make good some of that lag. 
uh, and some of the costs of the political chaos are reflected in that in that lag. Uh, it's still a largely ruralized society. It's still largely peasant. The shift demographically between indigenous people and people of mixed race, race in, in, in quotes, because I don't, one of us really believes in that terminology anymore, but it's a, an easy shorthand, e ethnic uh, 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 categories. Uh, it's shifted more in terms of uh, mixed race categories, although indigenous people are still very, very important in the population. Um, it has opened episodically, but considerably to the outside. In fact, as I, I think I quote at the end of the book, or at least I did in my biography of Alamon, uh, there's been a, a penetration, at least in the cities, of foreign merchants and artisans. Alamon, uh, towards the end of his life, in his Historia de Mexico, this monumental history that he wrote essentially in the independence period, uh, laments the penetration of too much materialism into Mexico, which is ironic given that he was a was the the very avatar of industrialization as a form as a route towards modernization. Uh, the country, of course, is half the size that it was in 1846. Uh, the uh, northern part of the country, uh, that tier having been cynically and violently shorn off by the United States, um, uh, there has been a certain amount of uh, university reform uh, by the mid-century. The mid there certainly has been uh, the penetration of European, not the penetration, I want to say the taking up, because penetration sounds like it's a forced entry, whereas uh, Mexican intellectuals, I think, were very open to uh, the uptake of ideas, for example, like Comtean positivism, uh, and other, you know, kind of offshoots of the Enlightenment, whether conservative or liberal. Uh, so I think that's a that's a that's a short portrait of what the country looked like in 1850. Well, I mean, it, it, it's no mean feat to, to bring together a, a century in a very turbulent a century whose second half is incredibly turbulent, wow. um, and. I would like you. Know, uh, I would like to thank you very much for spending time with us to discuss Stormy Passage. Um, I, I think uh, you know, this is a, a type of book that is needed because it helps establish the field and helps people to plant their questions a little more concretely, uh, especially as you know, if especially if this is something that becomes. An ob a topic of interest, which I'm, uh, which I feel, could very well be. Um, so, with that, on behalf of the Mexican Studies Channel and the New Books Network, I want to thank you for being on the show today. Uh, this was an incredible conversation. I've learned a tremendous amount, and um, you know, we hope to hear from you more in the future. Uh, anything coming up? Well. Uh, on a personal note, briefly, you know, I'm 77 years old. Uh, I published these two books, this massive Alamon biography and this book, 
since I retired in 2015, uh, I've always believed that the essential work of the historian is archival, you know, to, to work in, in unpublished sources. And there are wonderful historians who do uh, synthetic and imaginative work, uh, particularly in the field of intellectual history, without ever going into an archive. Uh, but I feel my own metier has been archival history, archivally based history. I'm not going to do that anymore. Mm. I don't have the, uh, the sits flesh for it, uh, which is a you know a, a, a term meaning you know I can't sit can't sit in an archive for hours and years at a time anymore. Uh, I do have some projects in the offing. <clears throat> One is a short book uh, publishing a transcription of Lucas Alemán's unpublished and unfinished memoirs of the early 1830s, which is a fascinating document, along with a long introduction and, and copious notes from myself and a concluding essay from the eminent Mexican historian Andres Lira of mm. the Colegio de Mexico. Uh, I do have uh, some other uh, projects I'm typically commissioned to do uh, articles. The, the most recent one I did was a cogitation on the writing of biography, which will appear in a Mexican journal uh, in the near future. I do have some article projects uh, when I published, and I know I'm running over time here, but I'll wrap it up. Um, when I published the Alamon book by Yale University Press, the original manuscript was 650,000 words. The book, which is 750 pages or so, is a is a 300,000 word version. So I had to cut it by more than half, and I cut out some things that I really would like to develop in, in some articles that got left on the cutting room floor. So I do have uh, a number of projects I'm thinking of. That's wonderful. Um, I I'm looking forward to to picking them up, and uh, and hopefully if, if if a book comes along, another book comes along, we'll have a have another similar conversation. Um, very, great pleasure talking with you, Richard. And uh, uh, I uh, appreciate the parents, the 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 patience of your hearers, whoever they may be, and commend you for the work you're doing. Thank you very much. Um, take care, and we'll, uh, we'll we'll see each other soon. Okay. Ciao. <laughs>